0: Luke chapter 10 is uh, where we are again this morning. We began a few weeks ago looking at Luke 10 in what most people entitle the mission of the 70 because Christ here appoints 70 others, we're told in verse 1. We assume that this is people other than the 12 who you remember were appointed for their own mission at the beginning of Luke chapter 9. And... We began to look into this passage and we saw something of a primer on evangelism, which is, of course, of great interest to us is because that is the second great commission of the church, the first given in Matthew 18, the second given in Matthew 28, our, our great commission to go out and to proclaim everywhere Jesus Christ, to make disciples of all nations. And so here we have an opportunity to sit in on one of Jesus' training sessions for his disciples and to learn from the master himself the one who not only brought the gospel the one who not only purchased the gospel with his own blood the one who himself was the model of proclamation for the gospel and we started to look at this passage and particularly the first 3 verses and saw several principles related there to our preparation for the task that's ahead of us we noticed first of all the importance of partnering with others there as Christ sent these people out in pairs or two by two ahead of Him, the same principle or the same pattern, I should say, that was repeated in Luke chapter 9 as Christ sent out the twelve, He sent them out in pairs. We saw the same pattern represented in the life of the early apostles that for the most part, everywhere the gospel was taken, with a few exceptions, the people were going out in pairs, whether it be Paul and Silas or Paul and Barnabas and, or Peter and John, we see people always going out with at least someone else. Because there's practical encouragement and accountability that comes from that kind of partnership. God doesn't design any of us to be lone rangers in the gospel or in the ministry. Some people may think so. Some people sometimes from time to time come to the conclusion that they would be more effective if they could shed themselves from the restraints of having to Be involved with a local body, but that has never been God's design. He has designed you in your Christian life to be a part of the body of Christ, a part with other Christians. He has designed you, listen, to be dependent. God has designed you to be dependent, not only on Him, but on other Christians. Now that flies in the face, I know, of your American idealism where you alone can conquer the world, but that's not the picture the Bible gives. The Bible gives you as one part of an entire body, and you depend on other believers if you are to accomplish anything that will both bring glory to God and be effective for the kingdom. Secondly, we looked at a principle in verse uh, 2, and that is that you need to understand or you need to perceive the imminent judgment of God. If you're going to prepare yourself to be effective in evangelism, you need to grasp grasp the imminent judgment of God. And Christ shares this principle, He says uh, to them, the harvest is plentiful, plentiful, but the laborers are few. And this idea of the harvest, as we saw, we traced it from the Old Testament, we looked into the New Testament, and we saw that everywhere in the Scripture as, as God, through His prophets, or Christ Himself uses the word harvest, or the apostles use the word harvest, it is always in the sense of Judgment. Judgment is is what is behind this idea. Christ himself says that the harvest is the end of the age. It is the judgment that's coming. And so you have a sense of urgency. And that's what he's trying to communicate to his apostles. And you see it all the way through the passage, the urgency that goes all the way through as he tells them in verse 4, you know, carry no money belt, no, uh, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. You have the sense that you're not to waste any time. You're to get right to the task. And you go on down and you talk and, and He gives them warnings in verses 8, 9, and 10 you know, down into even verse 11. The kingdom of God is near. It's near. It's at hand. It's about to be here. You need to repent. The time is short. And all the way through, the sense of urgency is driven by the fact that that God's judgment could come at any moment. The harvest is ready. It is ripe. And so He sends them out with this understanding of the imminent judgment of God. That is confirmed for us really in verse 3 when He begins to speak of sending them out into a pack of wolves. That's not a promise we talked about that if you go out and share the Gospel... You're going into these fields where souls are just going to literally fall off the branches and you're going to find a huge number of people coming to Christ. Christ pictures the task as going out amongst the wolves. These are people who are not a harvest of souls necessarily ready to be reaped, but a people who are known by the hardness of their heart. In fact, much of Christ's instructions here seem to be directed primarily at preparing the disciples for the unfriendly reception that they would receive. They're to go in there and be prepared as they go, not to be welcomed into the house. They're to go out there and be prepared to meet the wolves as they go. They're to go out there and be prepared to shake the dust off their feet as they are turned away, they're to go out there and they're there to expect the same sort of reception that Christ Himself received which He describes in verses 13-15. through 15. He goes to Chorazin or He goes to Bethsaida or He goes to Capernaum and they all reject Him. They reject Him despite all of His mighty works. So there's imminent judgment. There's imminent judgment and that is the picture of the harvest that you and I need to cultivate. If we're to be effective in evangelism as we go out, we've got to go with the sense of urgency. We've got to go with the sense that the harvest could happen at any moment. And we need to be diligent workers then. That takes us to the rest of verse 2 where the next principle was to pray for workers. We're to pray for workers. Whereas we spend much of our time these days, I find praying for the lost. at least prayer groups I'm in, pray so much for the lost and that's not necessarily a bad thing we find a different focus coming from our Lord the most specific instruction about evangelistic praying that's given to us in scripture here is an instruction to pray for workers we are to pray that God would thrust out or send out workers into the harvest and we talked about this word ekbalo the same word for casting out demons and it gives the idea that there's some sort of resistance there which we all know don't we I mean, He's sending us out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And so we have the sense that uh, that, that we need to be pushed out there because we're naturally reluctant to go into this pack of wolves. And so He says, pray that God would do that. Pray that God would thrust out labors. Pray that God would thrust you out into this field for the labor that's ahead of you. It was Paul's constant request. You may remember as he sent letters back to the churches where He administered. it was this constant request that they would pray for Him. That they would pray that He would speak as He ought to speak. In fact, His request for that was much more prominent than His request for those who would be listening to Him. So the focus is to pray for workers. Fourthly, we talked about preparing for difficulties. As Jesus picks up this image in verse 3 about wolves... And instead of the wolf coming into the pack of, or, or the flock of sheep, he is sending us out into the pack of wolves, and it's a graphic picture about the dangers and the suffering that we can expect if we obey God's command in evangelism. And this may be maybe one of the reasons why so few people are obedient to our to their Lord in this. It could be because they see the pack of wolves that are out there. They know how they will be devoured. They know how they'll be attacked. They know how they'll be wounded if they go out into the pack of wolves. And so they shy away. They withdraw. Christ doesn't want you to do that. Be aware of the difficulties that are out there. Don't be caught off guard by them. But don't certainly don't let those cause you to be disobedient to what God's called you to do. Well, today we continue to look at these instructions that our Lord gives, and we're going to look at some more principles that, given, that are given to us down through verse 12. I want to take a moment before we get any further just to read to you the text once again. We'll pick it up in verse 2. He was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money belt, No bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him, but if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what's set before you and heal those who are sick, in it who are sick, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, Even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Several more principles arise out of this passage for us as we read it. But as you just simply read this passage at face value, if you're like me, several questions jump off the page to you. The most pressing may be, why is Luke including this passage? He is the only one who's recorded for us the sending out of the 70, while every one of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record the sending of the 12. He's the only one that records the 70. And it would appear at first glance that this is just simply a repeat of the same instructions that were given to us over in chapter 9. You can see that in verse 3 of chapter 9. He's telling here the 12 as He sends them out, "...take nothing for your journey, neither staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even take two tunics apiece." Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city and ask for those who do not not receive you. Go out from the city, shake the dust off your feet as testimony against them. So it seems that in a more abbreviated form, we've already seen these instructions. So what's the point in including this once again? Why the repetition here? Well, I think it's because like any good teacher, Jesus, and of course Luke here recording His words knows and understands the power of repetition. And the fact is that this is repeated for us a second time, the fact that these instructions were given to first the group of twelve and now to a broader group of disciples, those facts alone and the repetition with it probably should lead us to the conclusion that this is not something that is limited to only a small group of people. In other words, when Christ gave the instructions to the disciples in chapter 9, We may read that and think, well, you know, they are the twelve apostles, after all. And so this is maybe some certain instructions that were given specifically to them, but have nothing to do with us. And then we read just a chapter later, and suddenly we see the same things repeated again, this time not to the twelve apostles, but to a much broader group. And you get the idea that this might have been something that Christ gave instructions to His disciples, maybe on multiple occasions here but what are these instructions, instructions exactly? What exactly are we supposed to do with these kind of things? Carry no money bag? I mean, that doesn't sound very wise to go out and just sort of presume on the Lord maybe. Greet no one on the way? That sounds sort of, sort of, sort of unfriendly. Maybe we are sinning by having our greeting table out in the foyer. I don't know. You know. What, what does this mean to us? And when we go into someone's house, say, peace to this house, I mean, how literally we're supposed to interpret those things? Shake the dust off your feet? I don't know when the last time you did that was, but it's not a regular practice of mine. But what do these things mean for us? I mean, if, if they're not instructions just for the twelve, if these are things that Christ seemed to be saying to all of His disciples as principles of what are what's the application here? Well, we need to do a little bit of digging this morning to get behind some of the cultural details that are in these instructions and hopefully lift out of this passage principles that our Lord saw as being necessary in even our evangelistic endeavors. You'll excuse me if I leave our alliteration from last week, our four P's but I want to give you some more principles this morning out of this text that I think are consistent with what's being taught here. In verse 4, we see a fifth principle, and that is that if we're going to be effective in evangelism, if we're going to do evangelism that glorifies God, we're going to have to learn to avoid unnecessary distractions. You know, I think most Christians don't take time to sit back and consider what distractions may be in their life. I don't know when the last time you sat down and took an accounting of your life and how you're doing in your performance, if you will, in obedience to God's command for evangelism and then measured that standard of what you're called to do versus how well you're doing and ask yourself, what are the things that are distracting me from what God's called me to do? But the Bible certainly presents us with a picture of the Christian life that needs to be weeded out from time to time from unnecessary distractions, Jesus gives instructions here that we find to be very interesting, and they sound very similar to what we read in chapter nine, where to go out, or he tells the seventy to go out with no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Those sound very interesting to us, but as we looked at in chapter nine. We understand that what He's telling them to do here is not to go out barefoot when He says no shoes, not to go out with no clothing when He says no tunic back there, but He's talking about extra supplies. Especially when you lay Luke chapter 9 versus the other parallel accounts in Matthew and in Mark, and you realize that there are some differences in the ways these things are worded, but when you put it all together and you look at the whole picture, you realize that what Christ is instructing His disciples to do is to take no extra provisions. Don't take time, He's saying, to go out there and store up for yourself all these extra provisions. Again, it's communicating a sense of urgency for the mission that's ahead of them. Christ knows what is necessary for what lies ahead in this particular mission. They're going out, it says in verse 1, into all the cities and places where He Himself will be going. They're going in in a sort of preparatory role. They're going to Seed the ground, if you will, and Christ will come along and water it later. And he knows that for this particular mission, they don't need those extra supplies. And so he tells them to go out. Go out without making these extra preparations being burdened down with unnecessary preparations. You may remember over in Luke chapter 22, that Christ makes a reference to these instructions in verse 35. This is near the time of His arrest and His crucifixion. The circumstances and the times have changed and as a matter of fact, the mission will now take on a different form. It will not be a short foray into some territory where He Himself will be following. Now they have to prepare themselves for the more long-term mission that will be handed to them when Christ is taken back into glory. And so He says in Luke 22.35, When I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, did you like anything? They said, No, nothing. And he said to them, But now, now things are different. Whoever has money, whoever has a money belt, take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword, uh, uh, excuse me, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. In other words, the circumstances will be different for different missions at different times. Christ was instructing them at this point because of the particular uh, circumstances surrounding the mission, because of the nature of it, He didn't want them to be unnecessarily distracted by going out and getting provisions that were far beyond what was necessary. They needed to make discerning choices here about what was useless and what would be a distraction. The point is not that the money bag itself is evil. Not that it's wrong from time to time to have some sort of storehouse of supplies. Not that it's wrong from time to time to make wise, strategic plans for the future. As a matter of fact, tonight we're going to have an informational meeting. Our elders have taken time in the last several months to sort of plan ahead for what we're hoping to do over the next five years. Those are wise things to do. But there are times when that kind of planning can even stifle your obedience. And it can hinder you. And you can become distracted trying to build for yourself too much material security and not focusing on obedience to God's command. And he also tells them as they go along to greet no one along the way. Well, that doesn't sound very conducive to evangelism. I thought that we're supposed to go out there and be at least friendly. To people, well, if you understand Jewish culture, you understand he's talking about elaborate, unnecessary social concerns. Over in chapter eleven, verse forty-three, he actually rebukes the scribes because they loved these sort of elaborate social events that were nothing more than than uh, 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 exaggerated greetings. Woe, he says to you Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. He's not talking about passing someone and saying, hey, Pharisee, how are you doing? He's talking about these almost like mini ceremonies that you would get sucked into in sort of a social culture of Jewish time. And he's telling the disciples that this is not the time for that. You don't need to be distracted by all of these social events that are out there in your culture. You need to be focused on the task that is at hand and you need to avoid unnecessary distractions. Those things are not going to help your mission, he's saying. These sort of social expectations, just like the material distractions, can take your mind off of what God has called you to do. Jesus had already sort of hinted at this or touched on this back in chapter 9 in verse 57. You you may remember three different would-be followers came to Him, all of them proclaiming that they wanted to follow, they wanted to go where He was going. And every one of them, Jesus confronts them because they were distracted. They had things in their life that were hindrances to them. These are hindrances, not just for those who want to be super dedicated, but Christ says for any of His disciples, these things can be hindrances. For one, it was wanting to go back and to claim His inheritance. He, one, along, one came along in verse 50. He says, says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus, first of all, warns Him that there are, no, uh, there are no personal comforts in His own life and the disciple could expect the same sort of thing. We can be distracted by wanting to build for ourselves nests, if you will, p- places of personal comfort as we go out and serve. Those sort of things can distract you. And he also meets another one who says he wants to come, but he says, first allow me to go bury my father. And we talked about how what he was really saying there was not that his father was dead, but he had to wait until his father died so that he would be around to accept the inheritance. And that sort of thing can distract you, this, this pursuit of wanting financial security to the nth degree. And then verse 61, another comes along and says, first permit me to go say goodbye to those who are at home. And that may itself have been some sort of elaborate ceremony. And Christ is saying, once you put your hand to the plow and you begin to look back at those things that the world concerns itself with, you are distracted. Let me show you another passage over in 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is maybe a little bit more clear and applicable to us, but the same sort of principle. Christ is, I mean, excuse me, Paul is telling Timothy, his disciple in the ministry, he says, therefore my son, be strong in the grace of the Lord, uh, excuse me, the grace that's in Christ Jesus in verse 1. And he begins to explain to him how to do that, how to be strong, how to let the grace that God has given you fully manifest itself in your life how to let that grace be strong. And he says in verse 3, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Here, the soldier is to recognize, first of all, that he's at war. He's in active service. And that may be the biggest entanglement in your life is to realize that you are an act, a failure to realize you're not, failure to realize you're an act of service. To think that somehow you're on leave right now. To think that somehow that you have the decision before you to step back and to go AWOL from the mission that's ahead. He's telling Timothy, You are a good soldier. You've been called into the battle. You are battling against sin in your own life, and you're battling against those those forces and fortresses of darkness that build themselves up against the gospel and the knowledge of God, and you are attacking those things. Realize that you're in a battle. Realize that you're an act of service and also know that you will suffer hardship. He says, suffer this hardship along together with me. And then he says, don't entangle yourself with the affairs of this world, everyday life. When's the last time you asked yourself and sat back and examined your life? and ask yourself, what is entangling me? What is distracting me? What are those things in my life that are keeping me from full obedience to Christ and His command? I'm a soldier. I don't entangle myself with those things. As I said, different circumstances, different scenarios may demand different preparation on your part. Christ certainly knew that at different periods in the disciples' lives, there would be time when they would need to have a money belt, when they would need to have certain provisions. And there is a rightful place for you to spend time having some sort of financial security for your family and for yourself, but you can become distracted. You can become distracted pursuing those things too much for where God has put you. Effective evangelism there flows out of a life that avoids unnecessary distractions. Back in Luke chapter 10, in verse 5, Christ goes on with His instruction and we see another principle that arises there. He instructs His disciples that upon entering a house, they are to say, peace to this house. And then in verse 6, He speaks of this peace as either resting on a man of peace or returning to you. The principle here is that we need to entrust the response of our preaching to God. We need to entrust the response of our preaching to God. Well, what is all this language about speaking peace and peace resting and peace returning? And what does all that mean? Well, so several people would step in here and explain that this is just simply the Jewish custom of greeting one another with the word shalom. And Christ is just simply telling them when they enter the house to say shalom. But that doesn't seem to answer everything that's here. This idea of resting and returning and certainly that would have been probably a reflex for them to do that anyway. He doesn't have to tell them these these Jews to go out and give a Jewish greeting. But we can pick up, I think, some clues as to what this passage is really telling us by just a couple of observations. First of all, We need to remind ourselves of the way in which Luke uses the word peace. Now, if you think through the gospel of peace, maybe if you're an astute student of this book, your first memory of that word comes in Luke 2.14. You probably sang it back at Christmas time, right? This was when the angels came to the shepherds who were out in the field and they said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He's pleased. They were coming and they were announcing peace. They were announcing that something was about to happen that would bring peace to people with whom God was pleased. That God would find His pleasure with some men and those men would experience peace. And then over in chapter 7, verse 50, we saw the same word used in reference to someone's personal faith. This woman who had come and had wiped the tears of uh, wiped Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair, Jesus tells her in verse 50, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Luke 848, the same sort of thing happens again. He tells here, uh, the woman who had the issue of blood once she saved, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. Over in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, which I might remind you the book of Acts was also written by the Dr. Luke. And in verse 34, he's recording one of the messages of Peter. And it says in verse 34, opening his mouth, Peter said, I must certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears Him and does what is right is welcome to Him. The word which He sent to the sons of Israel preaching... Peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place through all Judea. And he begins to recount how the gospel had spread through Christ and the apostles. Peace to men with whom God is pleased. Your faith has made you well, go in peace. Your faith has saved you, peace. And you see again and again and again, Luke consistently ties the idea of peace to the gospel and to the, per- to the idea of someone's individual response of faith to that gospel. And we understand that Luke is not using this word in the sense of personal inner contentment. That's what we often associate with the idea of peace. Especially in today's society, we, even, we often speak about the peacefulness in your heart that may come, may or may not be there when you have faith in Christ. There are certainly times of turmoil even as a believer when you struggle to have peace in your heart, but this peace is something else. This is a peace that's not talking about the inner peace. This is a peace that's talking about the new relationship you have with God. You have a relationship whereas before you were an enemy, you were an object of God's wrath because of your sins. God was going to pour out His judgment on you and you were in a relationship of hostility to Him. Now you're in a relationship of peace. Now you are a son. Now you have been adopted into His family. That is the announcement of the angels. He's not announcing that every single person who places faith in Him will experience a constant state of inner peace in their heart because there will be times of turmoil. But what He's saying is when you have placed your faith in Christ, you enter into a new relationship that now can be defined as a relationship of peace with God. It is then the gospel of peace. phrase that's used in Scripture. That understanding then of peace and the way that Luke uses the word peace may help us to understand more clearly what Jesus gives in the rest of this verse when He talks about in verse 6 there, a man of peace. Literally a son of peace. And that phrase, son of, is a Jewish way of describing someone's nature, someone's character, if you will. We've seen this several times in Scripture as you've read through, no doubt you've seen the phrase, son of light, children of darkness, children of wrath, sons of obedience, sons of disobedience. All of these things, when the Jews used the word son of, they used it to emphasize that someone had a certain nature. And they talked about the, son, uh, the, the, the uh, sons of disobedience being a person whose nature was bent towards disobedience. Or a person who's a child of obedience is someone whose nature now has been regenerated by the power of God and now his nature has a bent towards obedience. And so this, this reference of a son of, and by the way, maybe the most known is son of God, right? Communicating that Jesus isn't simply the offspring of God, but that He has the very nature of God. And so when He speaks here of a son of peace, which is literally what the Greek says, He's talking about someone here whose nature has been touched by this peace, this gospel of peace. He here is telling the disciples as they go in, they present the gospel of peace. They, they bring a blessing of peace through the gospel on this house, and some people will accept and some people won't. Their reception, their rejection of the gospel, uh, doesn't really affect you and your personal uh, 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 understanding of your success. You go in there and you present, and if you present this gospel of peace and it rests on this man, he receives it, he comes into fellowship with God and fellowship with you, then you rejoice in that. If he doesn't, you don't feel that somehow the gospel has failed or somehow you have failed. You still retain this gospel of peace. You keep preaching it wherever you go. Let me show you a couple passages that kind of give this same principle. Look over 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This has always been a profound passage to me. 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul's describing his own ministry as he goes out there and preaches the word. He says the word of the cross, and just to sort of summarize for you, that means the gospel. Paul makes that clear all the way through chapter 1 into chapter 2. The word of the cross is the word that he preached. It was the message of Christ that he preached. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now that's a really profound statement if you think about it. He is saying that one spokesman delivering one message with the exact same words heard by two different people And they receive the message two different ways. For one person, when they hear the words coming from the messenger's uh, mouth, they hear it and they conclude this is utter foolishness. In some places, they describe Paul's preaching and his message as contemptible. Something that's not even worthy to be listened to. This is something that's to be totally rejected. This person hears Paul preaching and they conclude that this guy doesn't even make sense I can't even understand and follow what he's saying. It is foolishness. And at the same time, in some other seat in the room, there's another person listening to the exact same message, the exact same day, the exact same words, and they're on the edge of their seat. And they're declaring, this is the very power of God. The same message, same words, two different responses. What's the difference? It has nothing to do with the messenger. It has nothing to do with the message itself as though it is different, differently presented. It has everything to do with the, res- the person receiving it. What makes the difference between a person who sees a message as utter foolishness and a person who sees a message as the power of God? It has to do with God's work in their heart. Look over at Second Corinthians chapter 2. I remember reading this in college and just being overwhelmed by the truth that's here. Second Corinthians 2 Corinthians 2:14 Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one aroma from death to death, to the other aroma from life to life. And who's adequate for these things? For we're not like many peddling the Word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Paul's saying, look, we go out and preach. We preach this message, this cross, message message of the cross. And for some people, (coughs) uh, we are the power of God. For some people, we are the aroma of life to life. For some people, we are the aroma of death to death. And the difference has nothing to do with you and your presentation. The difference has everything to do with the person who's hearing. For some people, your message will be the very stench of death. For other people, it will be the light of life. For some people, your message will be utter foolishness. It will be something to be scorned and rejected. For some people, when they hear your words coming from your mouth, they're going to be thinking in their heart, this is the very power of God. And I believe back in Luke chapter 10, that's what what Jesus is telling His disciples. Look, you go and you present this message of peace. You go in and you preach this message of peace, and for some people, they're going to receive it. Because they're a son of peace. This is a person that God is doing a work in their heart or God has done a work in their heart and they're going to receive the message that you give as the message of peace. For others, they're going to reject it. And you need not concern yourself with that. You need to entrust the response of the person to God Himself. Verse 10, excuse me, verse 7. A seventh principle. Be content with God's provision be content with God's provision. He tells them to stay in that house that receives you, eating and drinking what they give you, for the labor is worthy of His wages, and do not keep moving from house to house. Again, this could be touching on this issue of distraction, but Jesus knew that His disciples could become somewhat sidetracked if they were always looking out for better accommodations when they went into a city. And so he gives them some very simple instructions. Don't keep moving around. When you find a place where your needs are being met, someone's received you into your home, don't keep looking around for someone with a better pad. In other words, you're more concerned as you go out into this ministry to find a place where you can have a base of undistracted operations rather than A place that can give you the most comforts and luxuries, and as you are choosing, as these disciples are choosing who they stay with, they should be more concerned with finding people with the right kind of character and heart and receptivity to God's word than finding people with the right kind of amenities. Jesus knew it would be too too tempting for them to constantly be looking for housing and meals and 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 more prestigious places. And so He warns them not to do that. We're not to be distracted, in other words, from those, for, to, to, to those kind of things. That is always a danger in ministry. It's always a danger for those of us who are in vocational ministry. It's a danger for us as a church that we become too distracted with those sorts of things. But we can become as a church too distracted with buildings, with the, the luxuries that are out there that we see. Surrounding us in our own culture. He doesn't want them to do that. Be content. Be content. Now, a part of this contentment for these 70 disciples was recognition that God is going to supply their needs. He's not asking them to go hungry. He's not telling them that God is commanding them to be necessarily poor because He tells them in verse Uh, verse 7, that God will supply them as the principle stated, the laborer is worthy of His wages. In other words, Jesus is recognizing these people ought to be supported. And that principle is given to us time and time again in Scripture, maybe most clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, as Paul talks about his own ministry and his own choice to forego that kind of support from the church, but he makes the case that he had a right to it, it had he wanted. He says in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 9, do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? In other words, Paul was saying, look, I have a right not only for you as a church to support me so I can eat and drink, but I have have a right for you as a church to support both me and my wife. I can take along a believing wife just like the rest of the apostles, he says. He says in verse 6, Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of the fruit of it? Who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Down in verse 14 he says, So also the Lord directed that those who proclaim the gospel to get their living From the gospel. Paul may very well be pointing back to the very verse we're reading in Luke. The Lord Himself gave this command. The Lord Himself said that those who preach the gospel should live by the gospel, that the worker is worthy of his wages, that those who go out proclaiming the gospel and they come and they're welcome into the home of, of someone who receives the gospel should expect from those who receive the gospel to have some sort of support. And yet in the midst of that, he's telling these, these workers that they need to be content with what God provides for them. They need to be content with, with how God uses His people to provide for them. Now there's application not just for those of us who who've who, who place ourselves in full-time vocational ministry, but there's application even for you. You understand, I hope you do, that as you are living out whatever career God has placed you in, God has placed you in that career not for your own self-fulfillment but so that you could use your role and use your place to fulfill His great commission for you. In other words, you're an evangelist. You're a missionary. You're an ambassador, the Scripture says. You're an ambassador in your particular office or in your classroom or wherever God has placed you right now. You're an ambassador there. And you are to use and understand that role that God has put you in for His glory. And part of that is being content. Part of that is understanding that God has you where you are for a purpose. Part of that is understanding that you can't be anxious about always trying to climb the ladder and succeed, but understand that wherever you are right now, you have a purpose, you have a role to proclaim the gospel. Paul says over in Philippians chapter 4, in his own ministry, he had to learn this. He says in Philippians 4.10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. In any in and every circumstance I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things, he says, through Christ or through Him who strengthens me. Is that your attitude? Is that your attitude that God has placed you where you are and that you're going to be content with what you have and that you're going to accomplish all things that He has called you to where you are by His power that works in you. Folks, that's the principle as you go out and you are ministering, as you're preaching the gospel, as you're evangelizing, one of the things that you must always strive to do is to build in your self-contentment because if you're always worried about a better house, a more prestigious place to stay, more luxurious meals, whatever, however you want to say it, you can be distracted. Another principle, verses 8 and 9. Make the Word of God clear. Make the Word of God clear. Beginning in these verses, Jesus begins to turn His focus decidedly toward the message that's being preached. And twice in the next few verses, He will instruct His disciples to go out and to say, The kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, we've seen this message of the nearness of the kingdom consistently as the message of our Savior from the early days of His ministry, whether it's beginning even with John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is what? At hand. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Luke 4.43, he says, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. We saw even in his early days in Nazareth as he stands up in the, in the synagogue there and reads from the Isaiah scroll and he stands up and he reads a message, uh, a passage about the kingdom and he turns around to the congregation he says, this day, this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. So this message about the kingdom is the message of Christ. This is not some... Uh, uh, Select message about eschatology. This is the message of Christ. Throughout his ministry, we see the kingdom. We saw it in '81, 92, 9 11, 927, 960. Again and again and again, he's always telling his disciples to preach the message of the kingdom. It's, we're being told that he himself preached the message of the kingdom. So this is Christ's message. This is the message that he brought. This is the message that John the Baptist announced. This is his word. And it was something new. It was something that was not heard before. This was not something that that Christ was pointing to in the Old Testament that people could have discovered on their own. This was something that was new revelation. The fact that the kingdom of heaven was at hand was something that was previously unrevealed. This is new revelation, in other words. Now obviously, anybody could show up with a message And could begin to say that they have a message from God. But what made Christ's message distinct was that it was accompanied here by signs and miracles. In fact, it was the signs and miracles that validated His message about the kingdom. Over in chapter 11, verse 15, some Pharisees come and begin to accuse Him of casting out demons by the power of Demons. And in verse 18, he says, If Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, what Christ is saying is, My miracles are a sign a validating sign that my message about the nearness of the kingdom is true. My signs are a validation that the message I'm preaching is true. Or you can understand then why Christ gave His instructions in Luke 10.9. He gave them instructions that they are to go into these various cities and they are to heal those who are sick and then they are to say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. They're to go into these cities and they're to deliver the clear, distinct message of Christ. And in order to clarify that message, they are to validate it by miracles of healing. That message of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, the message of Christ, is no longer new for us. It now has been recorded for us faithfully by godly men in Scripture. And we now validate our message not by appealing to signs, not by going out and healing people, but we validate our message by appealing to the Word of God. Our message is clear from the Word. And the principle and the responsibility for us now is to go and to make that message clear as being from God. We're still to point clearly to the message of Christ. We're still to point clearly to the message of this kingdom, but we're not to allow people to suppose that somehow we've invented the message, that we've showed up on the scene with our own new message. We're not to allow people to excuse themselves from our message because somehow it arises from us, but we are to present that message as something that is clearly a representation from God's Word, representative of God's Word. In other words, it's our job to make it clear that the message we bring is not the mere message of men, it's the very Word of God. That's what the 70 disciples are doing. They're going out and they're giving the validating signs of their miracles and then they're turning around and they're proclaiming the new message, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is near. You and I now, we prove our message with the Word of God, the Bible, with a clear demonstration from that Word, about that word. So here they are again, faithfully presenting the message of the kingdom with irrefutable signs. And what happens? What happens? Someone shows up in your community, begins to heal everyone on the street, begins to perform signs, and tells you they have a message from God. It would probably get your interest. You would think that they would get a lot of people on their bandwagon, right? Well, that's not what happened. In fact, there was rejection. Think about that. Think about Christ coming to Israel, preaching, performing miracles, expounding the Word of God, living a righteous life, Showing the power of God through resurrections, through healings, through casting out demons, all of these things. Multiplying food in a way like no man could. Think about that. And what he received was utter rejection. Jesus knows that's going to happen. And at that point, those signs not only serve to validate these men as God's messengers, they serve, they serve to validate the hardness of the people's heart. And that'll be our next principle next week. Is not only do we make the word of God clear, but we have a responsibility to expose the guilt of unbelief. We have a responsibility to confront and expose the guilt of unbelief. Like I said, We'll spend some more time on that next week. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. I ask you to bow your heads and just a moment. We will pray and dismiss, but I wanted to say this morning that if you're here, we don't give an altar call, but we often give an invitation. You may be here this morning and for you... Religion has always been a convenient thing. You come and you obey the commands that you see in Scripture when they are convenient to you. You're here because maybe you are wanting to impress a spouse or a neighbor or a friend or something. Maybe even you want to impress God. The Bible tells us that never by our own works and our own effort will we please God? It takes you confessing your condemnation you stand under because of your guilt and asking God to remove that guilt and forgive your sins because of the sacrifice of Christ and His standing at the cross to take the wrath of God for you. Only by that can you enter into heaven. This morning, if you're here and you have never placed your faith and trust in Christ, I want to encourage you to do that. I want to encourage you to confess yourself as the sinner that you are and confess Jesus Christ as the only Savior from your sins. And you will know God in fellowship and in eternity. Father, we thank you this morning for the gospel. We thank you that it has redeemed our souls and it has borne us again to a new hope through Christ. Lord, we rejoice in that gospel and what it's accomplished in our life. And we acknowledge, Lord, that we have been called to take the gospel to all the nations. That as your ambassadors, you've entrusted to us the task of faithfully proclaiming the gospel. This morning we have listened in again to the conversation that Christ had with his 70 disciples. And we've been given a standard once again to measure our own life in in terms of its faithfulness to this command. Lord, I pray then that we would be doers of the word. And not hearers only. That where we have become distracted, where we've become discontent, where we have shied away from the dangers and the pain of rejection, where we have failed to be as faithful in praying for workers, where we have grown numb and cold to the idea of your imminent judgment. Lord, I pray for all of these things, our minds would be renewed by your Scriptures. And we pray, Lord, that you would thrust us out into the harvest. That you might accomplish your purpose in our preaching. Lord, we will entrust to you the response, but we know you've entrusted to us the task And we do not want to be disobedient. So we pray for your grace and help. In Christ's name, amen.